I don't know how many of you remember the stand-up comedian Rita Rudner. She was, um, I think Johnny Carson is the one who discovered her and made her famous. She did her stand-up shtick. Um, she was an interesting combination. She had kind of a unique way of going about it. She was always very glamorous and she wore evening gowns and so she came out and presented herself very glamorously, but she was really dingy. Right, and so her dinginess would, um, was kind of her shtick. She was actually an incredibly smart woman, but she just played that. And so um, she had a bit that kind of reminded me of our scripture lesson today, and here's the bit. The bit was, if you take water and flour, you make glue. But if you add butter and eggs, you get cake. And then she said, what happened to the glue, right? That's kind of what we heard in the scripture lesson today, right? If you take faith and good works, you get a self-righteous, sticky mess. You get a Pharisee. <laughs> but if you add love and forgiveness, you get the woman who is forgiven, you get a really darn good Christian. So um, let's take a look at this scripture lesson. It's really a great story, and I want to have you dive into it a little bit. Um, I, I want us all to be able to look at it as we kind of go through it. Um, it is, again, Luke 7, starting at verse 36, for those of you online. Um, those of you in the house, if you have the Pew Bible, it's on 943, or if you want it on your device, again, Luke 7, starting with verse 36. Let's just go through who the people are in this story. Who are they? So who is this woman? Who is she? Well, I can tell you this woman, the people who encountered her in that room would see her as audacious. They would see her as outlandish. No woman would ever enter that room uninvited. I want you to kind of think about maybe the like a scene from Mad Men, like a, you know, the, 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 the smoke-filled all-men's club, you know, of the 40s and 50s. Woman didn't just walk into that room. And that's how this room would have been, filled with men, filled with folks who were of a certain station, and women weren't allowed. They weren't invited. So she's outlandish. She was also deemed and labeled as a sinner. We don't know what the sin is, but we can assume. And the, assume, the assumption is that she was a prostitute. And the reason for that assumption is women had very few options in terms of earning money, but this woman obviously had money. Because not only did she have ointment, but the fact that the jar is labeled with a certain kind of jar means that it was significant, an alabaster jar. So she went out and purchased this thing and purchased the stuff to go in it. And so she obviously was a person who had money and, so, and she was a sinner. So that's kind of the assumption that leads. Now, she's faith-filled because she clearly enters that room in which she could have in those days been roughed up. She enters that room with faith knowing that Jesus will protect her. And so um, she is a woman of faith. She believes in who Jesus is. What we probably fail to understand and recognize in this lesson is how broken she is. 
She cries a lot. Over the years, I've had some really nasty, ugly cries, I'm telling you that. But I don't know that I've ever cried a volume of tears so much as to be able to wash feet. She cried so much that she washed feet. That's a lot of tears. And, you know, she's a caregiver, right? Jesus was an itinerant traveler, which, itinerant teacher, which means that he walked around from place to place, miles every day, in sandals, on uneven ground. You know, his feet were probably hurting and a mess. And she cares for, her, for him in that way. She's a caregiver. And so the, the kind of two things to just really reflect on. One is, um, in this story, she never speaks. She never says a word, which is kind of interesting when you think about it, because she never asks for a thing. She is a caregiver. She never asks, she never requests, and yet she gets everything that she wanted, everything that she needed, she gets forgiven. And so she's a giver. Her motives, we don't know what led her there. We don't know why she's broken. Her motives are shrouded in mystery, but she is a giving person. Who are the invited guests? Well, they are um, at a Pharisee's house, which means that they were likely the elite class of other Pharisees and or other wealthy folks. They would have been all men. This picture shows what a great rendering of what it would have been like. It's counterintuitive to us. It's weird for us to think about it in these terms. But these guys laid around and ate. Now, to me, that seems so odd I mean, they were so lazy that they just laid there and shoveled the food into their mouths, right? That's how it worked. They just laid there. And so when she came to care for him, you get a better sense now of how she was able to do that without kind of encountering him. She just was right at the edge of his feet, not even really engaging Jesus as a whole, but just dealing with his feet as they hung off the platform there. So these guys were elite, they were rich, they were certainly judgmental, judging not just the woman, but judging Jesus as well. And the text kind of shows that they're co-opted. And again, I don't know if that's a word that you use or think about, but they were co-opted. Essentially, to become a Pharisee, you were usually taken um, as a young boy and then raised in the confines of the temple. And so they hadn't had a normal kind of family experience for most of their lives. And for almost all of their life, they were told over and over and over again that they were just plain better than everyone else. And they'd been in that system for so long that they began to believe, they were co-opted, they believed the lies that everyone told them about who they were. They believed the lies that they tell themselves about who they are. That they're inherently better. Essentially, they've been in this system for so long, they don't give to anyone. They're takers. So when the 
when they see somebody who is actually a giver, they don't know how to handle that. They take. That's all they do and never give. So then who's Jesus in this story? Well, one thing that you need to know about this text is that it doesn't reside anywhere else other than in the Gospel of Luke. So it's only in Luke. It's a unique story to Luke, which means that we have to understand it in the greater context of Luke. And so, again, as I've taught over the years, um, each Gospel has its own audience, its own author, with, its own, with the author's desire for what story to tell. And so not, Jesus isn't the same in every single one of the Gospels. And so the unique presentation of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is that he is one who seeks and saves the lost. He is one who um, usually flips the script. He's the one who tears down the establishment and raises up the outcast. And he's not seen as some holy figure. He's not seen as some Messiah, that, like in John's gospel. He's not seen as this mysterious figure who's heavenly and who's going to do great things for us when we get to heaven. Quite the contrary in Luke's gospel. Jesus is definitely the guy who when you encounter him, your life gets, your, your, your narrative gets flipped. Your life gets switched. You become a better version of yourself today having in, encountered him and that's what we see in this text jesus is uninterested in doing something for her then your sins are forgiven like now right her life has been made better in this moment so who's jesus in luke's gospel who's jesus in this story he is a giver especially to those who are hurting Well, let's touch with where this fits in our series. So in our series, we've been going through and talking about starting school well um, because we struggle with that. Uh, you know, we race and chase. We have so many good things that we're overwhelmed by all of the good things and we just want to do everything and we just suddenly let our calendar guide us and drive us. The hard part about that is when that all happens, it begins to shift us and shape us. We can't say no and next thing you know we're on this treadmill and we just are racing and chasing all of the time and ultimately we wind up getting shaped by that experience. We're so worried about how we're gonna get through the week and how we're gonna get this person from here and how that we ultimately focus on nothing but ourselves, us and our own. And we sadly, much like the, much like the Pharisees, we get co-opted we get co-opted by our calendar. We get co-opted by all of the opportunities set before us, and after years, we become takers and not givers anymore because that's what it does to us. It takes so much effort to get through the week that eventually it winds up becoming all about ourselves all the time. And that's the hard part, right? So how do we not do that? We try to live by our values and that's why we've been focusing on our mission statement because if we start with our values and then decide what we're gonna do, we wind up being better off than if we start with our calendar 
because our calendar will decide who we become. I mean, we live better lives when we focus on our values. And I said this at the beginning of the series, it was repeated in the series, and I'm gonna end with it again um, this week, is you either choose your values and then let them shape how you spend your time, or you spend your time and how you do end up shaping your values. Again, think about that. You either say, this is who I am and this is what I believe and this is what I'm about and so these are the choices I'm gonna make. Or you say, well everybody else is living life this way and everyone else is doing it so how can I squeeze more in? Which is fine until you wake up 10 years down the line and say, what on earth have I been doing? There are reasons why people have midlife crises and that's because they race and chase for so many years and then they look up and they go, what have I been doing? How we live our lives by our calendar will ultimately shape who we become. But if we start with understanding who we are and using our values to shape our calendar, we wind up living as God intends us to live. And so again, our mission statement has been that which has helped us over the course of time. And again, I'll remind you that our mission statement was done in uh, 2000. It was formulated then at a retreat with our council and staff. And again, those were holy days. I wanna remind you of what I think has always been implied but never really been said very well, is that I believe our mission statement, the beauty of it is that it is in ascending order of difficulty. I mean, we talk about loving deeply, and sometimes, and for some people, it's hard to love, but you know what? When you're loved, and when we make the case for the fact that, you've been, that you are loved from God, loved by God from the beginning of time, then it's easy to love, right? Because I've been loved, so I can love. And then when we are loved enough, we can go, you know, I probably need to not just be stuck here, so let me grow, so I'll continue to grow myself. But even that can be somewhat of a selfish thing where I'm growing myself and I need to grow me. So that's the next level and a little harder. The hardest part is where we are this week, sharing and sharing abundantly. That's a challenge because that's the moment where you start to say it's not about me anymore, (laughs) right? that I'm loved and I do love and I, I grow and I'm better and no, it's not about me anymore. It's about everybody else. It's about how Jesus would want it to be, being about others. And this is what we see in this story. <laughs> we see in this story this woman who is sharing abundantly. She is caregiving. She asks for nothing. All she seeks to do is to share herself. Well, here's what I know about generosity. And I've learned this from having the privilege to be around really generous people. That's one of the perks about being a pastor is you get to be around some really generous people, people who have very little who will give you the shirt off their back or people who have a lot. (laughs) And um, in the midst of having a lot are very generous. Here's what they share in common. Usually two things. They share in common either a, I'm forgiven and I don't deserve this, so I'm sharing. 
or a, yeah, I worked hard and I had some talent and I, I did some good things, but where I am so far exceeds anything that I could have done on my own that I need to share. And that's the beauty of it, right? Is um, they have the sense of just being somewhere, no matter whether they're rich or poor, being somewhere blessed that they couldn't have done on their own. Either from negative to zero by being forgiven or zero to positive by being blessed. Generous people don't take credit for their station in life and they realize that it's been given to them and so then they have that responsibility to share. That's what generous people are and that's who they are. Just like the woman in the story, she knew she was forgiven by him and so she shared abundantly. And that's what verse 47 makes so clear. Again, in the story, Jesus goes out of his way um, to try to correct the Pharisee by telling the story of, you know, one person's gotten a little forgiven, one person's gotten a lot forgiven, who loves more, who's the greater, who, who has the most gratitude, well, the one forgiven the bigger debt. And so Jesus then compares that to this woman and says, therefore I tell you, in verse 47, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. And here's the key line. But the one to whom little is forgiven, forgives little. The one who doesn't see themselves for anything else other than who I am. Who, the one who has little to be forgiven for, the one who has um, taking credit for their own achievements and accomplishments, they really don't give. It's those who understand the magnitude of how much they fall short, the one who understands the magnitude of how blessed they are. It is these who are generous. I, I've asked in this story over and over again, who are the people in the story? Who's the woman? Who are the Pharisees? Who is Jesus in the story? I will ask you, who are you in this story? Probably a more pertinent question is, who are you in your story? Who are you in your story? If you want to take your own assessment, think about and reflect on generosity. Everybody wants to be generous. There's a difference between wanting to be generous and being generous. Everyone thinks they're generous, but it's like a sense of humor. Not everybody's funny. Everybody thinks they are, but not everyone is. Not everyone th is generous. Most people think they are. Take an honest assessment of your generosity, and you'll find where you are in your spiritual journey. I'll just end by telling you what we tell you to do every single week, and that is, my friends, I hope and pray that you will love deeply, grow spiritually, and indeed, share abundantly. Amen.